from CAFE. Welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There is no question that when Donald Trump calls the press the enemy of the people, it emboldens people who want to do bad things to a free press around the world. That's Fareed Zakaria. He's the host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN. I speak with him about the apparent murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, and what the Trump doctrine looks like abroad. That's coming up. Stay tuned. So you may have heard that Jeffrey Tubin was recently the target of angry tweets by Donald Trump Jr. Chuck Todd wonders how the Republican Party can be outraged by the political environment they helped create. And a new ad featuring Kumail Nanjiani has a simple message. There's only one voice that needs to be heard, yours. So register to vote today. Now, why do I mention all this? Because they're the guests at my upcoming live shows. I'll be in New York with Jeff on the evening of October 25th. Chuck will join me in Washington, D.C. on November 15th. And Kumail will be there on November 29th in Los Angeles. For tickets, go now to cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. And remember, we edit the version that goes into the podcast. Find out what you're missing and come catch us live. See you there. Let's get to your questions. This is a question from the Twitter account of It's Beardface. I don't know if that's a subtle dig on me, but I'll assume not. At Preet Bharara, I saw this article from Forbes about Chief Justice Roberts calling for an investigation of ethics complaints against Kavanaugh. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this in a future episode. Hashtag AskPreet. So I saw that news too. Thank you, It's Beardface. And what I assume has happened is, you know, during the process of confirmation with Brett Kavanaugh, various individuals made particular ethics complaints, which went to the D.C. Circuit. And the chief judge there, you may remember his name, Merrick Garland. So Merrick Garland, for reasons that you can probably surmise, decided he shouldn't be the one to dictate, you know, what the process would be for handling these ethics complaints. And so he recused himself from that. And then another judge in the D.C. Circuit, Judge Henderson, decided to forward these complaints to the Supreme Court, to the Chief Justice John Roberts. And then Justice Roberts decided to uh, forward the allegations to another circuit court that's also prestigious, but not the D.C. Circuit, to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. I wouldn't read too much into this. This doesn't mean that the allegations or the complaints have merit. It doesn't mean that people will find them to have merit. But I think you know, to deep six them in the current climate wouldn't be appropriate. It's not the way that the process unfolds. So it's just basically moved from the D.C. Circuit to another circuit. And I expect we'll hear something about them in the future. But you know, it's sort of easy for people to grasp onto straws of ethics allegations or future impeachment of, of Trump or Kavanaugh or people you don't like based on their ideology or their policy or your belief that allegations about them engaging in bad conduct are true. I just don't think people should get overly hopeful that you know appointments are going to be undone by these kinds of complaints that are dealt with and disposed of on a regular basis through the ordinary course. Because all of those things are huge long shots. Well, it's not a long shot if you want to change the arc of where the country is going and how the courts are populated. It's called an election. And that's coming up really soon. This next question comes in an email from Marcus. And Marcus writes, uh, hello, Preet, or hallo, as we say it. A question from a fan and weekly listener north of the Arctic Circle in Norway. The question is, if the Democrats only win back the House, which may be the most likely scenario and not the Senate, 
What do you think they could do with that power? Great podcast, Marcus. Marcus, thanks for your question. First of all, I don't think anyone should assume anything. I think we're spending a lot of time predicting, and predictions have a way of being incorrect. Remember, everyone predicted Donald Trump was not going to be the president, and he is. I think it's sort of interesting to watch the horse races, but nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody, I think, fully knows what the impact of the Kavanaugh hearings have been. It seems like it's energized you know, women on the progressive side. It's also energized men on the conservative side. And the only thing I know is that everyone should vote, no matter who you believe in, no matter what side you're on, no matter what your politics are. You get better representation for the country, the more people vote. That said, it seems that, you know, the smartest people are suggesting that the Senate is unlikely to be changed in terms of who runs it, and the House has a greater likelihood. So we've been in this position before. You're at a midterm point, and a chamber changes party. So what can they do with that power? Well, the first thing that legislators do with power is legislate. It's a little bit harder to legislate things if you have, as Democrats, only one of the chambers and you don't have the presidency. So if the House decides to pass something that they think is good liberal policy, whether it it deals with the regulation of guns or taxes or anything else, you have the Senate there to block it, and you have a president who may veto it even if you get enough Senate votes. One possibility that has been suggested on the legislative side, and hope springs eternal, is that if Donald Trump were delivered a rebuke, like the loss of the House to the Democrats, maybe he would pivot towards doing those kinds of things about which there's bipartisan support, like infrastructure and other things that are sort of not hot-button issues, where you could get a majority of people on the Democratic side and the Republican side in both the House and the Senate that the president could sign. That would be not a terrible thing for America and go back to things that unite us rather than divide us. Separate and apart from legislation, as you know, you know, the House the committees would then be chaired by Democrats, and they have the power to investigate. In the same way that the Republicans have investigating various things, you would have three principal committees in the House, as I see it, that might decide to engage in some investigative oversight. That's the Intel Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the Government Oversight Committee. And depending on you know what is important to them, there are lots of different things to look at. There's lots of corruption, waste, and abuse that could be looked at. And then obviously which I think is not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Uh, if it's done, I think, appropriately and with integrity and not just you know political payback, then that's terrible. And if you know Adam Schiff, who I don't expect this to be true, but if Adam Schiff decided to run the House Intel Committee in the blatant partisan way that I think Devin Nunes has been running it, that wouldn't be good for the country either. I think what you need is a return to rational, you know, logical, authoritative oversight by people who care about checks and balances. And that would be, I think, a good result. And then finally, I suppose that House, as some people want and other people think is you know, maybe not a high priority, is a possible impeachment of the president. That could certainly happen. I think it depends on what the majority is. I think it depends on what other things have gone on in the world. It depends on what Bob Mueller decides to put out and what actions he decides to take. But that said, If the House goes Democratic and the Senate stays Republican, that impeachment is not going to go very far. Because remember, impeachment is just the voting of an allegation. Then, as we had with President Clinton, there's supposed to be a trial in the Senate. And in no circumstance that I can imagine, at least as we see it now, would even a successful impeachment in the House lead to a conviction in the Senate. So you have the legislative side, you have the oversight side, and you have the impeachment. But before we start getting ahead of ourselves, just remember to go vote. This next question comes from a tweet from this old guy, 1957. That's, that's not so old. At Preet Bharara, really enjoyed listening today to your interview with Max Boot. 
touching in part on his new book. However, at the beginning, you briefly mentioned your own book. So my Ask Preet question is, what's the status? How about a hint? Well, thanks for asking. It's been a painful couple of months. Uh, As you may know, I turned in a first draft of my book in July. And as I understand, turning in a first draft does not mean you're finished. There's a lot more work after that. I turned in a second draft just yesterday to my editor. So I'm in a brief reprieve from editing and writing, which I'm enjoying immensely. So I'm focusing heavily on your questions and this podcast and the interview with Fareed Zakaria. We'll see when my editor gets back to me, but I think it's coming along. It's 27 chapters, none of whose titles I'm prepared to share with you just yet. And I'll have a better sense of when the book will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. If my editor hated a lot of it, then it's going to take longer. If he thinks that I um, conform to his suggestions and edits, then it'll come out sooner. But I will keep you posted. Happy birthday, Preet. I'm from Turkey, and I love you so much. Have a nice day. Enjoy your birthday, Preet. Bye-bye. Thank you, someone in Turkey. I'm going to respond with my stock response. I love you, too. Um, Yes, indeed, if you were on Twitter, you know that this past Saturday was my birthday. It was a milestone. It is divisible by 50. So I feel a little older and a little wiser. But as I said in Twitter of the weekend, I consider myself to be incredibly lucky. I think I have the best family, the best colleagues, um, the best professional experiences, and the best listeners and supporters anyone could ever hope to have. So here's to another 50. Thanks for your wishes. My guest this week is Fareed Zakaria. He's the host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN. He's also a foreign affairs columnist for The Washington Post and a contributing editor for The Atlantic. By the age of 28, he was the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine, and he's edited all of Newsweek's international editions. Slacker. I speak with him about the apparent murder of his Washington Post colleague, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who he has known for more than a decade, and why America turns a blind eye to Saudi Arabia's actions in Turkey and beyond. And, as Nikki Haley leaves the UN, we talk about American isolationism and the Trump doctrine. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Simply Safe is home security done right. And here's what I love about Simply Safe they are ready for anything. If a storm takes out your power, Simply Safe is ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. Let's say an intruder destroys your keypad or siren. Simply Safe will still get you the help you need. And look, maybe it's overkill. Maybe you don't need to be ready for every worst case scenario, but Simply Safe is always ready just in case. That's what makes it great. Simply Safe is a smart home alarm system that's easy to set up and easy to use. You choose the features, hardware, and service that's right for you. Now, Simply Safe could cost an arm and a leg. It should, but it doesn't. It's just $14.99 a month. No contracts, no hidden fees. Simply Safe has gotten an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running. And they have over 40,000 five-star reviews online. So go today to simplysafe.com slash preet. That's simplysafe.com slash preet. Life insurance is really important, but one-third of people don't have it. That's because it's really hard to buy. First, you have to work out what you need, then do the research to find the best quote, and you hope you don't get swindled along the way. That's not a good way to shop for anything. So Policy Genius made the whole process a lot simpler. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies to find the best policy for you. 
It takes just two minutes to get a quote. And if you don't know the first thing about insurance, don't worry. Policy Genius has you covered. They'll help you learn the difference between term and whole life insurance, calculate how much coverage you need, and be sure you're making the right decision. I'm a husband and a parent, and I know how crucial these choices are. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they also compare disability insurance, home insurance, and auto insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So whether you know a lot about life insurance or nothing at all, start your search at policygenius.com. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes and make an informed decision for you and your loved ones. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Fareed Zakaria, thank you so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure, Preet. Long overdue. So one thing that's been in the news a lot and we should talk about is the mystery, although some people think it's not much of a mystery, of what happened to Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who you know personally, correct? Yeah, I actually know him quite well. About 16 or 17 years ago, I was invited to go to Saudi Arabia because I'd been writing some tough stuff on Saudi Arabia in the wake of 9-11. And the Saudi ambassador to to the UK, Prince Turki bin Faisal, very, very powerful Saudi royal, said to me, you should come and see Saudi Arabia. You don't understand it. Spend a week. So I decided, you know what, I'll go. And I spent, I think, even longer than that. Jamal was my handler. He was working for the Saudi government. He was the guy interfacing with people like me. And what was striking to me about him at the time was he was really moderate. I mean, he was clearly the face of liberal reform in Saudi Arabia. So he was making the case for why they should be moving faster on women driving and things like that. But he was staunchly pro-monarchy. He was not in favor of a democracy. He kept saying, we can't arrest you know, preachers because these are part of Saudi society. So his whole impulse was a very moderate incremental reform. And, you know, he's been pretty true to that ever since. He's never been somebody who's been a radical, uh, let's get rid of the monarchy and, and have, you know, democracy in Saudi Arabia kind of guy. So to see him, first of all, to be branded an enemy of the state, essentially had to live in self-imposed exile in Washington. And then to see, you know, what, ha- what has happened to him, it's actually startling. It's surprising. It's it's very unsettling because the Saudis were not a police state of this kind. Saudi Arabia was generally a patronage state more than a police state. You know, they bought off their opposition. This is more Vladimir Putin, you know, kind of gory dismemberment uh, of somebody to make somebody die a painful death, maybe as a way to signal to other people. That's That's Putin. So why do you think he ended up that high on the enemies list for the Saudi regime. What, what, is, what is going on there? And what do you think happened? There are two theories. And honestly, nobody knows. You know, this is a black box, absolute monarchy. I mean, it's run like a medieval monarchy from the 16th century or something. So who knows? But I think that there's two plausible theories. The first is that Jamal was threatening precisely because he was actually very much part of the Saudi elite. This is a guy who comes from a very prominent non-royal family. Uh, You know, that famous arms dealer, Adnan Khashoggi, a billionaire. He's Jamal's uncle. Jamal has relatives who are even in other indirect ways, even related to the royal family. So he's he's a well-placed guy. He was working for people like Turki bin Faisal, very powerful royal. 
this suggests a very powerful schism within the elite. So there's there's one theory is that Jamal was important because he was actually an establishment member and, and was part of an opposing faction of the establishment. The other is, look, this is an absolute monarchy. You know, Mohammed bin Salman doesn't like people writing things against him. He doesn't like the idea that there is somebody out there. And in that classic way, you know, that famous line of Henry II, when he's, he's upset about uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, and he says, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Mohammed bin Salman said something like that, and people went out and did this. Well, that's interesting, because then that suggests that MBS Mohammed bin Salman has some plausible deniability, because that's the whole point of that famous phrase, right? That it can be viewed as, exactly. as just a comment as opposed to a directive. So which do you think it was? I think, you know, we're all speculating. I, it seems unlikely that you would send two plane loads of people to Istanbul, including people who are skilled in the art of, you know, apparently dismemberment, if that is in fact true. These are all leaks from the Turkish government, so we don't know if it's true. But if that story is true, it's very difficult to imagine that this happened without Mohammed bin Salman's knowledge. If in fact this was an abduction gone awry, which is plausible. I mean, it's we don't know enough here. But, right, but, but, but you know, for, for abduction, you always want to make sure you have a bone saw, uh, <laughs> you know, as a backup plan. Yeah, Th- that's, that's the part that makes it very, very, you know, the part here that makes this very difficult to believe anything other than a pretty dark interpretation is there is no body. You know, I mean, if if he died of a heart attack while being interrogated, you know, I don't even understand how you can go from interrogation to to murder. There's there's many many shades between interrogation and murder. I mean, Preet, you've seen police interrogations your whole life. I, I imagine you don't you don't see a lot of them that go from we're asking you a few questions to oops, the guy's dead. Yeah, no, I mean, look, there are stories of that happening when very harsh interrogation techniques have been applied. You know, outside the norm. But yes, I agree with you. But can, can we take a step back? By the way, I should mention that we're recording this at about noon on Tuesday, and maybe the, the facts will emerge and change over the next few days before this drops. But assume that it was a premeditated murder. You know, people showed up in Turkey. There are allegations that they had material, including a bone saw, and people who were skilled in these arts, if you want to call them arts. So suppose it was an, the intentional will of the Saudi regime, MBS in particular, to have Jamal killed. Why go to that length and why do it in a foreign country in your embassy? So I think, again, stipulating that we're making the, all the assumptions you just made, if this was premeditated and planned, it suggests that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is actually a much darker figure than we realize. And there really is a quality of the Vladimir Putin-like desire for control. Because what that suggests, very much like Putin, is the reason you do these, these assassinations outside of the home country is you're sending a signal to every dissident anywhere in the world that says, you can run, you can't hide, you may think you're safe in the United States, you may think you're safe in Turkey, you're not. We can get to you anywhere. That's why the Russians have always, you know, assassinated people in London, in Surrey, wherever it is, because they're sending a signal. That's why they do the assassinations in a particularly gruesome fashion. 
That's why you use poison because you want it to be a slow, painful death. So if that's the case, as I said, this is a big shift for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has not been a place like this. It's very different in that way from even a place like Egypt, let alone Iraq under Saddam Hussein. There were never tens of thousands of political prisoners languishing in Saudi jails. So no, the Saudi model, as I said, was it was patronage. It was bribery. You buy off your opposition. You put a few people in jail. But, you know, it does seem like we're seeing a new and much tougher kind of Saudi monarchy. So now the question is, this happened. Let's say it turns out that it was intentional. What is the United States supposed to do about it? I think there's no question what the Trump administration wants to do about it. Trump has invested so much in his relationship with Saudi Arabia. Right, not just Trump, his son-in-law too. His son-in-law too. And, and you know, that, that, that tells you something. When the relationship is basically being handled within the family, you know, this is a, there is a kind of almost mafia-like aspect to this element of the Trump administration where, you know, when, when it's being handled by Don Corleone and, and Sonny and Michael, you know this is important, right? So what they've done is they've subcontracted American foreign policy in the Middle East to Saudi Arabia. If you think about it, uh, the United States used to always try to be the great balancer in the Middle East. That was, you know, Henry Kissinger's famous shuttle diplomacy, where you were kind of equally trusted by the Israelis, by the Arabs, by the Syrians, by the Egyptians, and the Iranians, by the way. What we've done is we've basically signed on to a Saudi policy that says we support your, your very ve vehemently anti-Iran push, so we've, we're out of the Iran nuclear deal. We support your war in Yemen, even though... It is, makes no sense and is going very, very badly. We support or we don't criticize you when you kidnap the prime minister of Lebanon in an attempt to get a shakedown of that regime. Again, it fails. We support you when you try to throttle the small kingdom of Qatar, even though that isn't working so well. We don't have much of a Middle East policy under the Trump administration. What we have is a policy that says whatever Saudi Arabia says, we support. Now, in that circumstance, to suddenly find yourself, you know, with the guy you've put all your chips on, doesn't seem like he's the kind of international reformer that he was. That's a that's a huge problem. And I think the most significant thing that's happened in the last couple of days is the break in, on the Republican side in the Senate. I mean, you have people like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham saying that they want to sanction Saudi Arabia. That is a very, very extreme, powerful statement. That is setting us up for a head-on collision between Donald Trump and Republican senators. Well, do you really think so? Or is that just, is that just talk like we often see? My gut is that, we, that Trump will win. In other words, that these senators will back down. But there certainly seem to be pretty, uh, pretty outraged. And people like Lindsey Graham, I think they feel betrayed because they felt like they were sold a big bill of goods about MBS being this great reformer. What I'm guessing will happen, you know, now we're speculating, and as you say, we're, we're recording before this will air, but my guess is the Saudis will present some face-saving excuse which says this was, a, this was an interrogation gone awry, there were some rogue elements, those people are being disciplined, fired, maybe even jailed, uh, MBS knew nothing about it. Or, give, or given the death penalty. Do you, do you think there's a chance of people who engaged in this so that Saudi Arabia emerges from it, uh, you know, more unscathed? is that those people will face ultimate punishment as well? God, that's a fascinating possibility that this guy who probably did this under, under instructions would now be charged with murder. But it's certainly plausible that he'll be, get some very severe penalty. 
And the crucial thing is that the Trump administration will officially say, look, this is the Saudi position. We have found no evidence to doubt it. And so in effect, we accept it. And then they'll go to the senators and say, you really want to sanction Saudi Arabia? Oil prices will skyrocket. Our arms contracts will collapse. Frankly, a lot of big businesses will support Donald Trump as opposed to the senators. Everyone wants to make nice with Saudi Arabia. It is the central bank of oil in the world still, even though there are many other sources. Is some of our reliance on Saudi Arabia overstated? So I'm not an expert on arms, but this idea that the president has put forward that the Saudi Arabia government is buying 100 or $110 billion of, of military products, isn't it true that Saudi Arabia has long used American military aircraft and weapons and that they're not in the position to immediately shift to buying weapons elsewhere, that these things take some years to transition away from. And so don't we have some leverage in that regard? Yeah. So first of all, as with everything Donald Trump says that involves numbers, you know, I mean, divide by four is usually a good rule of thumb. So 110, it's actually, I think, about $20, $20 billion of, uh, of arms sales. Secondly, much of this was actually stuff that was started under the Obama administration. Thirdly, as you say, it's not easy to switch. These systems are not interchangeable. You can't buy one aircraft that's, you know, one American aircraft, one French aircraft, and one Russian aircraft. It doesn't kind of work that way. Where they do have some leverage is they are the central banker of oil. I mean, even though we are now in energy independent and we produce a lot of oil, Saudi oil is the easiest oil to extract. And so that makes it very easy for them to switch on and switch off production in a way that's very hard to do with the fracking or Russian oil, because these are very expensive projects. And once you put the money in, you can't take it out. So the Saudis have that capacity to go on and off, which makes them very powerful because they can, they can essentially control the price by just turning on the taps or turning off the taps. The issue, I think, is not so much all that. It's just that, I mean, if you're looking for something that's going to end this recovery, uh, sanctions on Saudi Arabia, oil spiking to 150, uh, even in the short term, that'll do it. Yeah. So there are other considerations, and we've kind of tied our hands. Can I want to go back to the Trump administration's unfolding response? Is it sometimes the case, based on your experience, that obviously your hands are tied a little bit and you have an ally, and your ally does something terrible, and there's a lot of pressure from political forces in your own country, even from your own party, like the Republican senators you mentioned, to do something about it? But you want to, in your public comments, Trump has been very careful to say, well, there's been a strong denial. It was a very, very strong denial. He believes strong denials, apparently. But then privately, you say to your ally who has done something bad, you send them angry words and you yell at them. So, for example, Secretary of State Pompeo apparently had a very short meeting. He was dispatched immediately by the president to go meet with uh, MBS. What happens in that meeting? Does somebody say you know what, you put us in a terrible spot, you do this terrible thing, knock it off, you know, we're going to knock your block off next time, don't do it again, or do they hold hands and say, look, this will blow over, I'll take care of our opposition in the States? What, what happens there? My gut is that it's more the former in this case. My gut is that Pompeo probably went into those meetings and he said, look, you guys need to understand, this is a big deal. This guy was an American resident, he's a former Washington Post columnist, this is snowballed. We need a fully transparent account of what happened. Uh, you know, and I think that 
particularly the Trump-Putin meeting is unusual. Usually there are note takers at these meetings. There are other people involved. It's very rarely literally one-on-one. And so Pompeo would be very unlikely to say something that could get back, which suggested that he had in some way given a green light. So both for reasons of propriety, which is it wouldn't be the right thing to say, but also just politically, he would be making sure that he didn't say something that would leave him vulnerable to being seen as having given a green light. So I think that's probably what they said. And that my guess is the Saudis are absolutely stonewalling in the sense that they are absolutely denying any knowledge involvement. Because if they show any crack on that, from their point of view, I'm sure they, they think it would be a disaster. So they have to maintain the line. We knew nothing about this. We're trying to figure out what happened. It's a terrible tragedy. We're as shocked as anybody else. The whole I mean, there's a bizarre element here, which is that Khalid bin Salman, Mohammed bin Salman's brother, who was the ambassador to the U.S., many people have thought that when the crown prince becomes king, he, Khalid, will become the crown prince. They're that close. He was a friend of Jamal Khashoggi. So, the, the, you know, that's, as I said, the whole thing is, there's a truly bizarre element to this where, what the F were they thinking? <laughs> right. Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you two things? One, in order to engage in foreign policy in an intelligent way, is it necessary for our politicians to sort of lie and mislead the public in order to calm the waters with allies and tow a party line, whereas behind the scenes maybe there's more frank discussion? Is that just the nature of how foreign policy has to work for us all you know, to maintain our safety and our relationships in the world? Is that just a, a fact of life? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's not quite as nefarious as, as you make it sound. I'd say that's probably true in all serious public policy, right? That there's a certain amount of transparency that you want for, for a democracy, uh, for accountability, but you can't have total, complete transparency at every moment, uh, particularly in the, in the middle of a complicated and sensitive negotiation. So, for example, take the renegotiation of NAFTA. If each side had been divulging what concessions they were about to make, and then thus mobilizing, you know, the opposition to those concessions domestically, it would be a disaster. You wouldn't be able to get anything done. But I don't think that the fundamental problem here is not that. The fundamental problem here, in my view, is the Trump administration has made a bet about Saudi Arabia that is, at the very least, wildly naive and exaggerated in its hopes for what Saudi Arabia can deliver as a force for progress and stability in the Middle East. And now that you have this symbol of something that suggests that they're not the great reforming guys that they were being presented as, it calls into question that whole policy. So, for example, this is leading people to take a second look at the Yemen war, the Saudi war in Yemen. You know, Yemen is now the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And that's saying a lot, worse than southern Sudan, worse than the Congo. And it's entirely inflicted by one country, Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, there's a question of why are we supporting this? Why are we allowing American weapons arms training to be used in this process? It certainly doesn't seem to serve American interests. This one murder has perhaps made us uh, look a little bit more thoughtfully or a little bit more critically at that question. I have a question about cause and effect. So you mentioned this naive bet that the American government placed on MBS and on Saudi Arabia generally. And on the other hand, we have this evidence that maybe there was a premeditated murder of a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. 
did the first thing potentially cause the Saudis to think they could get away with the second thing? Or were we just being naive in placing the bet, not realizing that Saudi Arabia was capable of doing this terrible thing? I think it's very plausible to suggest that the Trump administration's unquestioned embrace of Saudi Arabia emboldened them, because this is not a normal Saudi tactic. And the Trump administration has been so so unqualified in its embrace that it may have allowed a new leader in Saudi Arabia who wants to be tougher than previous ones, who wants to assert his authority, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, to say, you know what, we can rough things up a little bit and we don't have to worry about the Americans. I have the Americans covered. I'd make an even broader point about this, Preet, and I don't know that in this particular case this was going on, but there is no question that when when Donald Trump calls the press the enemy of the people, it emboldens people who want to do bad things to a free press around the world. There is absolutely no question that even the Turkish president, Erdogan, who has many journalists in jail, the Philippines president, Duterte, who does, you know, that's the smallest part of what he does. He say he unleashes death squads to take care of political opponents. All these people know that the one country that used to call them out on these things, that used to, uh, you know, raise the issue in bilaterals, bring it up at the UN, is not going to say anything because the president of the United States is going on about how the press is the enemy of the people. And of course, many of those people use the same language. So Duterte talks about fake news. He talks about how the press are the enemy of the people. Erdogan does the same thing. So it's not an accident that the last two years have been, in some ways, the worst years to be a journalist in many parts of the world. It's because the force that used to be, in some ways, speaking up for these things, the the United States government, is AWOL. So I I want to use the example of um, Jamal Khashoggi, who we've been talking about for a while, to sort of take a step back and ask the question, how should our foreign policy be conducted? So, for example, some other country does something. There's evidence that they interfered with our election. They've harmed an American citizen or they've taken someone hostage or they've taken an American resident, not a citizen, which is a distinction seemingly important to the president, but they've taken someone like him and perhaps murder him in a foreign embassy. How is the public supposed to think about what our foreign policy should be, what our reactions should be, and how they judge the actions of our government. So, for example, let me let me give you a hypothetical. Would it have made a difference, and should it have made, should it make a difference, if Jamal was not only an American resident, but also a citizen? And let me make it even more stark. And suppose there was an action taken against him in the Saudi embassy in the United States. Everything else is still the same, right? We still have this this bet that you said we placed on Saudi Arabia. We still have the issue of oil. We still have all these other things going on. Does that then take us to a level where? the current reaction is woefully inadequate and we should do something much more dramatic. How do you think about those principles? Yeah, it's a really profound question because it sort of gets at both substantive and and the optics that govern political life. Uh, First, I think what's really interesting here is the way that the American system, by which I mean Congress, uh, the press, has reacted to Jamal, even though he was not an American citizen. The president, as as you point out, tried to make this very churlish and narrow you know, distinction. Well, he was an American resident, but he was not a citizen. But you know, I think that the fact that Congress has been so outraged, the press has been so outraged, other governments have been so outraged. Look, the guy was, was a full participant in American life. He was living here. He was paying his taxes. He has three kids who are American. He's being employed by one of the great 
national institutions in the United States, the Washington Post. You know, in some very fundamental sense, he is an American. He is a participant in American political and civic life. For a foreign government to do this should be considered an outrage, whether or not technically he was. So I'm very glad that Trump's attempt to say we shouldn't worry about him because he doesn't have an American passport hasn't seemed to work. And even he has had to come around. So what if it happened here? What if it happened on American soil? I mean, we've had the same discussion with Putin. You know, he does things in the UK. Could he do things here? Like what happens if, if a country does something like that here? So there you're raising this very profound question, which is, you know, there's, you have the interests of the state, the interests of the nation, and they are about stability in the Middle East, low oil prices, maintaining a good relationship with the Saudi monarchy. Then there are these things, not just human rights abuses that they do at home, but as you say, stuff that involves American citizens or impacts on American citizens. And how do you make that balance? You know, here I find myself, as always, something of a centrist because, you know, for all those people who say, oh, we should just, you know, sanction the hell out of Saudi Arabia, do this and the other. Well, you know, ask yourself, if you do that and oil prices go to 150 and you cause a recession and people get laid off and, you know, think about the cost you're inflicting on Americans because of that. So part of what you're trying to balance is what is the right thing to do, the moral thing to do in terms of standing up for individual rights, liberty and dignity? And, you know, how important is it also to maintain some level of stability in the world that allows for a functioning global economy, that allows the United States to, to function well, that allows people to, you know, to have jobs? And obviously, you know, these things are going to affect people on the margins. You're not, you know, no single action is going to put millions of Americans out of work. But you have to balance those two. And to pretend that there isn't a trade-off here is a mistake. Put it another way, if this had happened under Obama, Obama would also be torn. It's not just Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is doing it in a particularly crass way where he's, you know, said first he's saying the guy doesn't count because he's a resident. And then he's saying, well, you know, we've got these arms sales. But Obama would be thinking many of those same things and be trying to wrestle with this dilemma. It does get much, much harder. I think, you know, you're, you're doing that classic lawyer thing, law <laughs> school thing, where you're making it harder and harder for me. So if it were in the U.S. and the Saudi... I don't know what you're talking about, Zakaria. If it were in the U.S. and the Saudi embassy, very hard not to react very strongly. I think, you know, so... And why is that? Look, this is not rational. There, there is an emotional element here. You know, why was it that that boy's photograph on the beaches of the Mediterranean, that Syrian boy, triggered a response and may, might even have triggered Angela Merkel to take in one million refugees when there have been plenty of other people washed up dead on the shores of the Mediterranean, somehow didn't seem to trigger that. Something happens that triggers a response, but it usually is a critical mass, you know, that there's been a lot of stuff going on and then one particularly dramatic event happens. And that's when it gets triggered. Yeah, there, there's a tipping point, And sometimes a tipping point is a word or a speech or an event or a photograph, as you said. But I want to go back to what, something you said a moment ago then. You've been lauding senators, and in particular Republican senators, for being strong in their statements. You know, are, mm -hmm. are they being strong in their statements because they would do something different as president? Or are they being strong in their statements because they can afford to be because it's not on their watch, because they're merely senators and not the president? A very brilliant point. That's absolutely right. I mean, the Senate plays that role. Senators play that role. But by the way, I think it's a good thing in the American system that you have a little of that, that the president can be tasked with kind of looking after the longer term, more realpolitik interests of the country. The senators can give voice to moral outrage. I, I've never seen that as a bad thing or as hypocrisy. I do think it sends a signal to the rest of the world that America is a 
you know, it cares about these issues. And while the president may not be able to shut off relations with another country because of that, there is a reaction in the country and that there is a condemnation in the country. And I think that's that's very healthy. That presumably allows someone like Secretary of State Pompeo to go into that meeting and say, look what the senators are saying. And they're going to push sanctions. And the next time it's not going to be so easy. Exactly. And I think that I think every administration uses that very effectively, but they need for those senators to sound, you know, like they mean it, that it's not just an act. And I think it isn't an act with people like Lindsey Graham. I think that he is genuinely outraged. Let me ask you a broader question about foreign policy, which we should talk about more on the show. Is there such a thing as a Trump doctrine? And if so, what, what is it? To the broadest extent, the Trump doctrine before he came into office uh, was easily identifiable. It was a kind of isolationist Jacksonianism. We used we use Jackson, Andrew Jackson, as a as a way of describing a certain kind of isolationism, which is to say, don't bother me. I don't want to be too involved in the world. But if I'm going to get involved, we're going to come and beat the shit out of you and then and then leave. <laughs> right. Don't expect us to any nation building. Don't expect us to have any alliances. It's stay at home, occasionally bomb the hell out of people, go, go back. And that, that's his mentality. And it was very clear. He hated NATO because it's a permanent continuing alliance with all the thorny issues of burden sharing and budgets and things like that. He thinks that trade is basically bad because people take advantage of us. So, he, you know, he has a very strong isolationist streak in him. What's interesting is in office, some of that has, has shown through, as you've seen with the NATO stuff. But the truth of the matter is, if I were an establishment Republican trying to convince other Republicans, establishment Republicans, that Donald Trump has been okay, I'd say, you know, he says all this stuff. He lets off all this hot air about America. But what has he actually done? You know, he hasn't get, gotten out of NATO. He hasn't gotten out of Afghanistan. He hasn't gotten out of Syria. In fact, in all those places, he's actually doubled down. The relationship with Japan is fine. I mean, he'd been threatening to pull out troops out of Japan, South Korea, Germany. But is that, is that all happening, just in fairness? Is that happening because he is, he is smartly saying one thing publicly and blowing off steam and then being, you know, rational and moderate? Or is he being protected by, you know, the adults like General Mattis and others? Which, which do you think it is? I tend to think it's probably the latter. It's what you're describing, but let's be honest, Preet. This is this is like a this is a freak show. I mean, this is a, <laughs> this is a, a, a this is a circus. Nobody's ever seen an administration like this. Where you know, as as Michael McFaul, the, Obama's ambassador to Russia, said, if you look at the administration's policy toward Russia. It's actually very serious and very tough. They've armed the Ukrainians. They've put additional sanctions on the Russians. They've called them to account in various international bodies. The only problem is the president periodically seems to suggest that he doesn't agree with the administration's policy at all. And so right. we're trying to figure out like, what does that mean when the president says, well, I don't think they even did it and I don't think they should be, should be held accountable for it. And by the way, Putin's a great guy. And meanwhile, the administration is slapping additional sanctions on them. So is it possible, for example, that we end up in the same situation with Saudi Arabia where there'll be some, some measures put in place and Trump will be like, well, I think Kill King Salman is the greatest guy in the world and I totally believe him. It was a rogue operation. You know, right. people came in from the, from the windows of the, into the Saudi consulate and somehow managed to do this. It's an interesting thing that, that suggests that the words of the president matter more than the words of anyone else and that people put a lot of stock in it. And there's some cognitive dissonance sometimes when the president says something, but his administration is doing something else. So, for example, if you flipped it, you know, a lot of people think that this president is not tough on Russia because, 
you know, everything emanating from his pores and his mouth suggests a warm, romantic love of Vladimir Putin. But suppose it was the opposite. Suppose the president had very harsh words, but you know, nobody did anything about it. What would the public's reaction be? In, in some ways, I, I think, and you would know better, that maybe the public would place the importance of the words and the calling out of an adversary in strong language as more important than these sanctions that they only read about from time to time and they never actually see how they work in practice. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, that's because the, the American system is very unusual in that it really is a court. The president is the king. As you know, in many most parliamentary systems, the cabinet is comprised of very powerful leading figures from whatever political party that the prime minister is from. These are not people he can really fire. These are very, you know, think of Gordon Brown when he was Tony Blair's finance minister. The American system, the president is the king. Everybody serves at his pleasure. He can get rid of everybody he wants. I mean, there's that famous cabinet meeting where Lincoln asked the cabinet what what they thought about some policy. And everyone said, nay, 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 nay. And, And then Lincoln says, well, I vote aye. And I guess, gentlemen, the eyes have it. <laughs> I think what he said in the same way that Donald Trump said to Leslie Stahl this Sunday, I'm the president and you're not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that goes back to Lincoln's time. But that's true. You know, think about it, Preet. The president has enough power that he can fire even you. Why um, are you going to so mention that? that? Why are you going to mention that? We were having such a nice conversation. <laughs> I was really enjoying this. I think you're... I think you are having an interesting, <laughs> an interesting life. You know, there's just surely more fun than putting bad guys in jail. Yeah, well, you know, I don't have a TV show like some people. <laughs> Preet Bharara well, GPS. You know, t- I think that would, I think that has a nice ring to it. <laughs> hey, come up with your own acronym. <laughs> <laughs> global positioning system, right? That's what it stands for. <laughs> no, it's global public global square. Public square. I, I know, I know. I watch. <laughs> Can I ask you about another figure who's been in the news, Nikki Haley? who happens to be a fellow Indian American, for whatever that's worth. Have you seen anyone else perform sort of as deftly in a prominent position in the Trump administration in terms of balancing their reputation, their relationship with the president, and future political viability than Nikki Haley? No, I think you have it exactly right. And frankly, it's one of the most impressive political balancing acts I've ever seen, period. Because as you say, she comes in, by the way, doesn't have any particular relationship with Trump, has spoken out against him during the primaries, also has no background in foreign affairs, manages to overcome all that by working hard, you know, getting quite expert on some foreign policy issues, the ones that she had to present, somehow developing a good enough relationship with Trump, but at the same time, being able to represent herself independently, for example, she was one of the toughest voices on Russia early on, at a point where it wasn't clear that Trump would, would allow that to happen. You know, So I give her a credit for kind of pushing the envelope there, uh, and then very smartly leaving at the top of her game. Right. She did not overstay her welcome. Yeah. Yeah. It rarely happens in politics. What she knows is She's done a good job. The chances of having two more good years is just because life is complicated, are not that great. So why not leave at the top? Is she special in some way so that only she could have gotten away with that, being harsh in some language, pushing back in other places? I mean, in other words, are there things for other people in the Trump administration that they can learn from her or is she unique? You know, it's a very good question. I don't understand how she pulled it up because Rex Tillerson was not able to. I think that Either she had a conversation with Trump and said something like, look, 
you know, I think it's important that you allow me to say these things so you don't have to say them or something like that. There was some kind of deal or, or more likely she's very intuitively good politically and figured out that this would be the place you could go. Because everything I know about Donald Trump suggests you can't sit him down and have a conversation like that because, first of all, he'll forget it two days later. It won't make any difference. He'll react the way he's going to react anyway. So you have to, in some way, figure out how to approach this in a way that constrains him without him feeling constrained. And I, I think that's why I say it was brilliant because nobody else has been able to do it, even Mattis. You know, Mattis has been able to maintain his independence, but he's not really been able to speak out in a highly critical way. Right. Um, so that, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know her. So uh, maybe you do. But, the, you know, as you know, there isn't really a kind of Indian-American club. <laughs> it's the Illuminati. Come on. Yeah, where we all meet and plot the eventual, you know, that we're going to have Vedas sung at the, at the next inauguration. This is an example of one of those things where we have to not be transparent publicly and tell everyone <laughs> that there's no such thing. But, exactly. but obviously, you and I, we have that special handshake, you and I, Fareed, which we won't share exactly, with other people. Exactly. So you've been, you've been complimentary of her, Nikki Haley's political deafness. What is your assessment of her time as uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations? Uh, not particularly impressive. I think that the key opportunity when you're at the U.N. is to see if there are ways in which you can get the rest of the world to you know, support American initiatives that is going to solve global problems. Look, we're in a world that is totally globalized in so many ways, for economically, of course, but you know you have diseases and they get globalized immediately. You have climate change, which is a global phenomenon. And yet our solutions are all national because we still have a politics of nations as we should. So the trick is how do you get how do you get that level of cooperation? And it seems to me that should be the measure of a US ambassador to the UN or of America's engagement with these kind of bodies. And I don't think she did very much on that front. I think she positioned herself well for her own purposes. She didn't use it to try to do what it's meant to do, which is to solve problems that are by nature transnational. What's the continuing relevance of the UN to America and the world? Just that, that you have a world in which these problems are spilling over borders and you need some forum in which you can meet, negotiate, talk to people, get a critical mass of people who become a majority, which then forces other people to go along. It's not ideal. And look, at the, I mean, if the closer you get to the UN, the more you see the dysfunction. But if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it because you need some place where people can get together. And the UN has a unique legitimacy because it is it does include everybody. You know, so at some level, the G20, which is the sort of 20 largest countries in the world, sort of, may be a more efficient way. You just have 20 countries. They're the big boys. Uh, if you know, if they agree to stuff, everybody else will probably have to agree to it. But that lacks legitimacy because the small countries are, are not at the table. So the UN has this very powerful legitimacy, which is everyone is represented. It makes it more unwieldy. It makes it more dysfunctional. But the UN has, by and large, massively served American interests. We've been able to mask American power, American preferences, American interests as global interests because we have much more say in the UN than any any single country. I want to switch gears a little bit because we're coming up to the end of our time and ask you about how we should think about historical leaders, historical world leaders. You're, you're a highly educated person. You have three or four PhDs. How many PhDs do you have? <laughs> Just, Just one. one. You know, after, after that, it becomes too many. Yeah. <laughs> it's one more than I have. So you have, you have infinity times the number of PhDs that I have. 
And recently there was a con- there's controversies all the time, but I want to ask you about one in particular. Scott Kelly, uh, well-known astronaut, whose twin brother is also an astronaut, and whose sister-in-law is Gabby Giffords, former congresswoman, who quoted approvingly Winston Churchill. And then there was a uh, an avalanche of criticism about that because there was an unseemly side, some people say, to Winston Churchill, and he was not so modern in his views in all the ways we would like someone to be. And then he apologized for quoting Churchill. Is it appropriate to quote Winston Churchill in 2018? Of course it is. The, the whole thing stru- struck me as bizarre. I mean, he was quoting from Churchill's, the first page of his uh, his memoirs of World War II. It was the most anodyne quote. Churchill says, and he quoted, in victory magnanimity. When you're winning, be generous. It strikes me as a perfectly reasonable thing to say. So then you get these people saying, oh, but Churchill was a racist and he was an imperialist. And then Scott says, oh, I'm so sorry. I should have looked this up. I stand corrected. This is absurd. Look, every historical figure of any significance is complicated. I'll tell you, it's funny you bring up Churchill. My father was a kind of figure from the Indian independence movement. When, the, when India was being ruled by the British, my father was one of these guys who was struggling to get the British to give India independence, and he became a politician and things like that. And he was always a big fan of Churchill's. He had all the Churchill books, and he had a you know bust of Churchill and things like that. And he one day told me that when he was in, in, in England in 1945, that's the election right after World War II, because he was a British su- a subject, if you were an Indian who was in, in London at the time, you were allowed to vote. So I said, oh, you must have voted for Churchill because you, have, you admire him so much. He said, oh, no, no, of course not. I voted for the Labour Party. He said, you've got to understand, I admire Churchill because he's a great world historical figure. And he's a great leader. From an Indian point of view, he was terrible because he was the most terrible imperialist who wanted the British to rule India forever. And so, of course, for me, a vote against Churchill was a vote for Indian independence. It just shows, you know, people are complicated. Churchill made many mistakes in his life and did many bad things. And I think it's basically fair to characterize him as a racist. But on one incredibly important thing, which was the rise of Nazi Germany, he was right and everybody else was wrong. And the fact that he was right had a very important effect in saving Western democracy, which I think is on the whole, you know, was a good thing. On the, on the whole, yes, I would, I would, I agree with your assessment. Dr. Zakaria. Yeah, you know, a, a bad, bad idea for the for the Germans to have won World War II, right? So besides which, even if he had done some things worse, the quote was so anodyne. The only thing I'll say about this, Preet, is there's a tendency to overreact to things on Twitter. I mean, you know, when you say there was an outrage, there was like 20 guys on Twitter saying stuff. Right, but he apologized. And he shouldn't have. He should have realized these are tw- 20 guys, you know, in their pajamas and basements tweeting out stuff. I mean, Those are the same guys who interfered with the election, right? Weighing 400 pounds, eating Cheetos. Yeah, this is not the wave of moral outrage. I mean, it's like, that's my point, which it might actually be one person, you know, with 19 bots. May I risk quoting from Churchill? My favorite quote from Churchill. <laughs> as, you, as you can see, I'm okay yeah, well, with it. Well, you know. I think, I think not. But if, but if you get 10 tweets against it, just let it be. But my, so you, you can tell me if this is anodyne or not, and then you can define anodyne so I know what that means. Mm-hmm. So Churchill has the best joke about prepositions that I've ever heard, right? Somebody wants this person who won the Nobel Prize for what? For literature, apparently ended a sentence with a preposition. And do you, do you recall what Churchill said in response? There's something's up with which yes, I will not put. Yes, he said, put. that is the kind of errant pedantry <laughs> up with which I shall not put. You can send your complaints to cafe.com. 
I think it's great. I, I only say this. I think whenever I have tried, because when you're writing a column and you have fact checkers and you have people breathing down your neck, you're always, I, I'm very careful to try and track down where these quotes come from. What I've discovered is many famous Churchill quotes were actually not said by Winston Churchill. What I mean by that is they were said by somebody not very important or impressive or well-known. And what I've discovered is there is a kind of inflation that takes place in the world of famous quotes where you want your quote to have been said by Churchill, by Lincoln, by Jefferson. When it's said by somebody else, somehow magically, the attribution of the quote keeps moving up. So I think that's that I would just check. It may be it may turn out to be Lord Darby or somebody like well, that. I think a lot of quotes attributed to Churchill were actually said by Benny Hill. I don't know if people know that. That's <laughs> definitely true. Fried Zakari, I look forward to your tenure as Secretary of State one day. <laughs> maybe maybe you can you have th- Nikki thank Haley. You. So maybe, maybe, maybe you can have Nikki Haley as your deputy and, and teach you no, about No, but politics. let's make Nikki Haley president. You become attorney general. I'll become secretary of state. We need a Desi to be uh, secretary of defense. That's the one area where we don't have a, right. well, Like people wouldn't think of an Indian as a viable secretary of, of defense. I don't know why. Why are you telling people the goals <laughs> we arrived at at our secret meetings? I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're doing that. Fried Zakaria, thank you again. It was a pleasure. Pleasure, Fried. So this week I want to end the show on what I think is a heartwarming note. You'll recall that I had as a guest on the show famed and legendary NPR broadcaster Nina Totenberg back in the summer to talk about the Supreme Court. And you may recall that she and I discussed the way in which our paths crossed a few years ago. And if you don't remember the story, you should go back and listen to that episode. Because not only does it have some sharp analysis on the Supreme Court and what to expect, but you'll also learn how we met. And that was through a violin. Nina Totenberg's father was Roman Totenberg. He was a renowned violinist and the owner of a very special instrument, a 1734 Stradivarius, which had been sadly stolen from his office at the Longy School of Music in Cambridge, Massachusetts, way back in 1980. And then in 2015, the ex-wife of the thief turned in the violin to the FBI when she went to have it appraised because she found it, I think, in an attic. And it was my office's responsibility to return the violin and we did so with great joy, to Nina Totenberg uh, and her family. Her two sisters attended the event as well in August of 2015. It was one of the most pleasurable experiences I had as U.S. attorney. Well, we have an update, a further update. After the violin was returned to the Totenberg family, Nina and her two sisters did not want the beautiful instrument to sit, you know, idly in a collection. You know, after all, it had been sitting in an attic for 30-some-odd years in the first place. So what they decided to do was they decided to have it restored, which the Rare Violins of New York has been working on for two years, apparently. It takes a lot of work to restore a priceless violin from 1734. But most people, as you might imagine, could never afford to buy such a priceless instrument, I guess hence priceless, and would have no intention of actually using it. It would just be on display somewhere until an anonymous person, the benefactor, approached the Rare Violins owners and offered to purchase the violin. Not for himself or for herself, but for a young musician who otherwise would not be able to afford or play such a special instrument. This led to the creation of the Rare Violins in Consortium Collaborative, it's a mouthful, but a good mouthful, where wealthy patrons can purchase musical instruments and lend them to young, aspiring, talented musicians for extended periods of time. So, What happened to the now famous Totenberg Ames Stradivarius? Well, after 35 years of silence, 
It is now in the very talented hands of an 18-year-old young man named Nathan Meltzer, who is a student at Juilliard. And I can tell you, even though I'm no expert, the violin sounds as beautiful as it ever did. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Fareed Zakaria. I really enjoyed having him on the show. Yeah, it's a really profound question. So there you're raising this very profound question. A very brilliant point. You know, it's a very good question. No, I think you have it exactly right. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Courtney Harrell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Congratulations to Max on his new baby girl. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.